0: Welcome to Inkstained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and uh, what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, I brought you a cup of coffee, and you made a face. When I say a look of disdain on the way that I prepared the coffee, but then in perfect fashion, I was like, did I do it wrong? Can I get you anything? And you're like, no, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> After you, like, yeah So what is the correct way? How... For the f- future, how should I make your uh, coffee? Because
1: I put two Splendas in it, so I'm just not uh, like I'm okay. not used to it being like so. You so your light,
0: so your light cream, like a splash of cream, but two Splendas.
1: I mean, I put a lot of milk in it too. It's basically just a dessert.
0: Well, I want you to know my as a as a <laughs>
1: and and if my husband forgets it because he brings me coffee any morning, I'm like you yell at him.
0: <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> yeah. That just sounds. <laughs> What a lucky guy. That's yeah. really. Here's your coffee. Throw it in his face.
1: Yeah. I'm like, like, you did it wrong.
0: Zoolander. Try Don't you again. know that a foamy latte makes me gassy?
1: Yeah. Try again. Uh, <laughs> you
0: are. You are. the. What was the name of the designer in Zoolander? I forget. Wolf, one of Will Ferrell's greatest.
1: Mugato. Mugato. Oh, Mugato. Yeah. Yes. You are the new,
0: you are the Mugato of your marriage. Uh, That's yeah. good. I like yeah. that. That's good.
1: Chris, how far are we on the road to bestseller, bestsellerdom?
0: You know, and I talked about this last are week. Are you
1: able to track it?
0: I mean, I'm sure there are ways that you could. I'm sure there are people at my publisher who are. I mean, you just
1: try to be blind.
0: You know, the, the, it's the same thing about ratings. If you if you know, then you will chase. And what, either it will be or it won't be. I hope the book is a enormous success, not only because my children are – Strike me as people who can get into good colleges but not get scholarships. So I'm going to – I, I really want it to do well for selfish reasons, but I also want it to do well because I think it has an uplifting message oh and my a gosh. helpful message.
1: Your son said to me, I said, so – Eldest or so – The, the younger son younger, said yes? to me, I said, so what do you think about your dad writing a book? Are you proud of him? And he said, well, it's good for him and it's good for me. And I said, <laughs> I said, why is it good for you? And he said – Threw his hands in the air and said, college tuition.
0: <laughs> there you go. I like it. Obviously. There you go.
1: And I said, and I said, and why is it good for him? And he said, I'm not really sure, but I think it is.
0: <laughs> a, I have the same thought yeah. when I'm waking yeah. up at 5 in the morning, you know, when you're doing international TV to sell the book and you're like, yeah, no, this is good. This is good. This is good for me. Yeah. But it is really good for me because I've gotten a great outpouring of love from people who matter so much to me like you. And it's been just a nice. It's a nice thing. I'm at a book event where I, I got to see you and your husband. I could. I couldn't even give the talk. I teared up. I, I John Bainard that thing.
1: The cake was really good.
0: Well, that's. I I did not eat any as a fat person trying to be less fat. I did not where have any. But it from? looked good. I don't know. It looked good. But it
1: was delicious. It is a cake
0: that I like because it was the light, light and fluffy cocoa, light cocoa with vanilla icing. The great Michael Meehan, our host. It was uh, delicious. I'm sure made sure that we had good cake.
1: All right. All right. Front page. We've got a Daily Beast story indicating that Chuck Todd, the longtime host of Meet the Press, maybe on the ropes at NBC, after his executive producer, John Reese, who has been the EP of the show for the last eight years, was sent over to the NBC News streaming service, and they brought in a new executive producer. It's called NBC News Now.
0: Oh, and this is a, they have competing Peacock. streaming services with Two different each other. Streaming Always services,
1: smart. and they brought in. I thought this was interesting. They brought in someone from CNN who helped develop CNN Plus, uh, David Gellis, to run the Meet the Press Sunday show, which is down 21% in total viewership year over year. It says more than any of the Sunday politics shows. And then this is according to the Daily Beast, Gellis' first order of business, multiple sources said, is deciding what to do about Chuck Todd, who despite recently signing a two-year extension, has baffled many at NBC with how long he's remained atop the struggling show. They also indicate that White House correspondent Kristen Welker is being groomed to replace him. So, well, what Chris, a, what, a what terrible, is your take? What a
0: terrible way that NBC treats people. Like, uh, NBC, <laughs> the, the amount of leaky, mean, and the, remember all the drama with the Today Show back in the day? And then you remember all the drama around David Gray. Remember how terrible was they were say, to David really, Gregory? I was going to say this really
1: brought back David Gregory vibes about, I feel like his his departure from the show, it felt like a six-month story where it was like a drip, drip, drip oh, thing they were, when he was they finally were... replaced by Chuck Todd. And then, yes, the Ann Curry drama at the Today Show was and they were painful. Br-
0: so here, here's the David Gregory. I'm looking up what year this was. David Gregory became the host in 2008 and was there till 2014. He
1: succeeded Tim Russert.
0: Right. And David Gregory had been the NBC News White House correspondent, uh, and he's very tall. And David Gregory got into the job, and he was not good at it, and especially because he was following Tim Russert, who, though the cult of Tim Russert sometimes is a little rich for me, he was really good at it, he was enjoyable, it was good TV and all that stuff. So David Gregory takes over, and they are awful to him. And at one point, somebody at NBC leaked a story about him that said that they were getting, like, a psychiatrist for, or, like, they were getting psychological help for him to have more confidence. Nothing, nothing would really build your confidence up any more than reading in the news about how your boss thinks that you're so, such a tremulous mouse, they've had to hire somebody to coach you to be better. So they put in Chuck Todd, who, oh, maybe this is, here's a question yeah, for you. I, I
1: pulled up the story because I wanted to be able to
0: about Gregory. That up,
1: yeah, NBC allegedly hired psychological consultant to evaluate Dave, David Gregory.
0: Now, I thought at the time that Chuck Todd might have been one of the forces behind, or how about this, in a, in a cooey bono, like who's leaking, who's pushing, there was definitely a team Chuck Todd energy behind the effort to oust David Gregory. And Todd, I think, very unfairly, Ended up being targeted by the American left as some sort of a capitulating sellout. Not whatever. Didn't did Chuck Todd work for Debbie Wasserman or something at some point? Do I have a recollection of that?
1: I'm not aware of that. It doesn't. Did mean he
0: ever have a job in politics? I thought maybe it he didn't had.
1: Happened. I just wanted to pull up. This is a mediaite story. Among those signs of concerns was the networks. This is a mediaite story. Was the networks' decision to commission a quote psychological consultant to interview both Gregory and Gregory's friends and his wife? An NBC representative said the 2013 study was designed quote to get perspective and insight from people who know him best. In spite of the fact that Gregory has worked at NBC for two decades. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Chuck Todd
0: Todd worked for Tom Harkin, Democrat of Iowa. But anyway, Chuck Todd really got. So there may be a hoisted on your own petard element here that after somebody was tortured as the host, only for you to replace them, that now he will be tortured and then Kristen Welker can get the job and then she can be tortured. But NBC's mean. It seems like a, a, a mean, unsupportive place to work from the outside. I don't know but that's what it looks like.
1: Well, to me, actually, I I have like a more macro view of this, which is like a Sunday show issue and how if you are the host of a Sunday show, those shows are just less relevant. And I actually think it's quite a challenging job for any of these people who are the hosts. So it says, well, you know, Meet the Press is down 20 percent. Like I actually don't you know, we, we do this for a living. I don't find any of those shows to be much must watch shows no, anymore. Certainly not. And I don't know how I would approach the job where I Chuck Todd or Margaret Brennan or George Stephanopoulos or Shannon Bream, who's taking it over at Fox and make it a much watch, wa- a must watch show. It just seems to me an enormous challenge because of the constant availability and flow of information you don't have the convening power that yep. you used to have that's exactly um, right do you have any thoughts on like whether should we still have these shows well something's how do how do you make them more relevant it seems to me like regardless of kind of the internal politics of nbc that like this is just a challenge for it doesn't matter who you put in that seat like it, that's going to be hard
0: Well, yes, it's going to be hard, and it's going to be whoever you would put in that job uh, will face exactly the same challenges that Chuck Todd did right away. Uh, You know, at NBC they tried to make Meet the Press their political brand across the spectrum, right? And they were going to they had his Daily Show, which they canceled. I guess part of me with the story says, isn't this sort of the long march out for Chuck Todd? They took away his Daily Show which he shouldn't have been doing anyway. He should have just done the focus on. Here, let me answer your question this way. If you have a Sunday show, focus on making it truly, truly, truly excellent. And networks should allow, whether it's Shannon Bream or whomever, the time to have a really, really excellent show, and not just one that plugs in. And then people can rewatch it. They can record it. They can watch it later. They, you, I, I would, If I were hosting a Sunday show, my goal would be to be a DVR smash hit, right, that you would get people to record your show, that they'd want to watch it throughout the week, and that it was something that they'd really want to have. I think what can make it better is making it different than most of the crap that is on television that passes for political debate and argumentation, that you could have it be really excellent and get great panelists. But as you say... It's never going to go back to the old days where it's like, can you believe they booked so and so? And people are like, yeah, I saw them on a Twitch stream earlier today. Yes, everybody's famous now. Everybody's on television all the time. So it doesn't have the convening power that it once did. But I think you still could just focus on making it a very, very excellent show.
1: Yeah, I do. I agree with you. I think there was like an overexposure problem where that show got to be everywhere all the time and a podcast here, there, everywhere. And I never really understood like how, how one person was able to do all of that. It's really, really challenging and exhausting.
0: I have a real heart for, for somebody in the position that Chuck Todd is, which is you have all these people watching you rooting for you to fail, right? All Uh, of these, so hard. all of these, the people on the left are rooting for him to fail. People on the right are enjoying his misery because they think that he's crooked the other direction and his competitors inside NBC. So I would say, you know, this is a tough spot to be in. And it's like golf. The time where it's most important for you to be loose and cool when you address the ball is right after you've just humiliated yourself, right? The The time where you need poise and presence is right after you double bogeyed the previous hole. And that's when it's hardest to do. So I hope, I hope, I hope that he finds his groove and, and gets cool.
1: Next up, was probably the piece that I found most interesting this week. A New York Times report on the Washington Post business struggles, and I'll, I'm going to read a little bit from it. But I, I liked it because for once we have the these the big papers covering each other, and so the Times writes about frustrations inside the Washington Post, which is losing money, and it's the focus is on Jeff. Uh, Bezos who bought the post from the Graham family and on Fred Ryan who is the CEO uh, he was the CEO of Politico and he's now um, running the business side of the Washington Post and this part amused me. So the post uh, in the post Trump era uh, has lost several uh, has has lost many, many subscribers and they're now no longer profitable. Um, but I loved this paragraph. Mr. Ryan's focus on productivity and office attendance in the newsroom has also been a source of tension. Uh, yeah. What an unreasonable <laughs> lunatic. Um, he has expressed his belief to members of his own leadership team that there were numerous low performers in the newsroom who needed to be managed out. He has monitored how many staff members come into the office and has weighed new measures to compel people to return to work, including threats of firing, several people at the Post said. And it goes on essentially to say that they are struggling to find their footing in the post-Trump era and to expand their coverage beyond politics, but have not been able to do so yet. And what struck me about this is, Chris, we've talked about how like it's just really difficult to make news profitable. And like what jumped out about me to me is like even Jeff Bezos cannot do this.
0: Well, I don't, I don't know what Jeff Bezos thinks the Washington Post is or what it's supposed to do. I can tell him right now. I know you're out there, Jeff B. I know you're listening closely. The effort to make the Washington Post profitable by what one media analyst called uh, optimizing for anger and the post jumped right off a cliff in about 2018 2017 and decided they were going to imitate the clickbaity performative outrage uh, low quality outlets that were succeeding they 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 leaned into the democracy dies in darkness stuff so hard that it became their brand, right? It became who they were in a way that the New York Times did not. The Times definitely not. Not here to say that you couldn't perceive an, an angle in the New York Times coverage of politics in the past six years, but the Post really cheapened it, and they really went too hard. And the point I would think of being as rich as Jeff Bezos, so that when you get divorced and you have to give your wife half your stuff, that you're still one of the richest people in the world. Uh, that's uh, that's if you're if you're if you have that kind of dough. Why would you want to own a paper that was pandering and crappy, right? And there's a lot of good journalism at The Post. There's a lot of great journalists at The Post. But why you don't need the clickbait stories, and you don't need that stuff because you're rich, and that's awesome. Fred Ryan, who was at Politico, right?
1: Yeah, he he was the CEO of Politico. But Bezos bought The Post in 2013, so he bought it before, you know, pre-Trump era. Yeah. And, and then was okay with, you know— the direction it took in the Trump era, or or so we think, presumably because it was profitable. But my understanding is that he is part of the push to like, you know, steer this ship back in in the other direction that is you know meeting resistance when the guy wants people come in the office and has the radical idea that maybe low performers should be nudged out the door but it is striking to me that like the richest guy in the world who has made money hand over fist is struggling to find a way to make news profitable
0: well he shouldn't he shouldn't he should lose he should be willing to lose money on it and the reason, and you know, this. this story
1: I'm totally with you on that. I think, like right now, that is the way to do to do good news and reporting.
0: And and this talks about how Bezos has become less interested in it, and that the th- these calls, trips, to executives have declined in the number of that stuff. And you know, uh, the reason to buy the newspaper if you're a rich guy is to be influential in your city, to be part of your city, right? I was talking to the great John Podoritz about this on the commentary podcast, where we we celebrated you, we celebrated him, but peace be upon him, about how the one of the problems at the post is you have a absentee owner, you have this rich guy who buys it, but he he's not a Washingtonian and he doesn't think about Washington and he doesn't care about the sports teams, and that's the kind of stuff that wouldn't matter to him. Whereas if though I pointed out to him, it could have been it could have been worse, it could have been Dan Snyder, but the like Jeff Bezos. Should probably own the Seattle newspaper, not the not the Washington. He should own the Wash a newspaper in Washington State, not in the city of Washington. Maybe I don't know.
1: You take the next one here.
0: Just I had to note. I had to put this down. Say so you know my obsession about news alerts. News alerts that aren't news alerts. And here was a, the Washington Post with with a news alert this week. News alert colon deforesters are plundering the Amazon. Period. Brazil is letting them get away with it. And at one o'clock on a you know Tuesday, the post was like, "I'd like news alert. What is it? Oh, ongoing environmental degradation and corruption in Brazil. What? Who knew? Thanks for alerting me, post, so that as I go through the remainder of the day, I can be aware of this long-standing and ongoing problem. Thank you for the news alert.
1: Your item next, too.
0: My item next, about too? about
1: Mr. Steve Ducey. And- oh, yeah. Let's
0: well, let's start out. Let's play a little clip.
1: Uh, here, here's the thing. What, what they're
0: saying is the DOJ is saying the special master is unnecessary because it could actually harm uh, national security interests. Also argued that the yeah, judge. It well, here's the thing. When you look at those documents, can we go back and look at those documents on the floor? Uh, keep in mind, according to the filing, the agents found three classified documents in Donald Trump's desks. What were they doing in the desk? And when you look at these particular things right here, uh, at least five yellow folders marked top secret and another secret SCI, that stands for sensitive compartmentalized information. These are the biggest secrets in the world. So Steve Ducey and the whole crew at Fox and Friends taking a tougher line with Trump on this stuff and maybe even echoing a little bit of, from time to time, a little bit of the Mike Pence energy about, you know, don't target law enforcement over this. Don't defund the FBI. Why are you doing this stuff? So I, I thought, number one, noteworthy. But number two, good for them.
1: Well, I have a question for you. Okay. Do you see this as part of a Murdoch world uh, turn on Trump connected to like the Post, the Journal and Fox collectively taking a harder line on Trump, in which case, like, I mean, maybe it's good for them, but also, maybe they're, like, doing what they're told.
0: Well, I, you know, Steve, nobody draws more water at Fox than Steve, so he certainly can do whatever he wants. He is well-liked, and he has been there forever and is a ratings juggernaut. So he has, the, you know, he, he is the 800-pound gorilla, but fortunately for people at Fox, he's the 800-pound gorilla who just wants to talk about the... Lemon squares he and his wife made. Uh, a lovely couple, lovely family. So he's because he's a nice guy. It, uh, it hits a little different. But I, here's the reality for the Murdochs and Trump. There's no health. There's no way to have a healthy, normal kind of candidate to news organization relationship here. Trump is as as they are. You know, living with the, in living in the aftermath. Uh, still with all these lawsuits and stuff. It's just Trump is will not be housebroken and he can't be part of it. So is there some organization-wide push? I don't know. Certainly they they don't put me on the memos anymore. I don't know that there, that there is such a thing. But I can also say that for individuals throughout the organization, it would start to make sense that Trump, who has been so awful to Fox, right, Trump was a lot better for Fox's competitors ultimately than he was for Fox, because he was a ratings bonanza for other networks, but they didn't have to care what he thought. Trump got some. Trump was good for some ratings for Fox, but he was not. He was not worth it. And watching all those anchors for all those years, begging for another interview, another interview, another interview, but then Trump turning around and mean well, tweeting worth the network. It. I mean,
1: Fox, Fox, and conservative media, and this is true. I think. Vice versa, like, as you say, for MSNBC and CNN, like political media is always better in opposition so that's why like cnn and msnbc did great in the trump era they were they were the opposition and i remember i worked at fox in the obama era and it was like ratings bonanza it was a lot of fun yeah it is fun to be the opposition and i can say like running running the beacon you know we're not the opposition to the democrats but of course like you know we are a center-right outlet and we we have more fun we do better like when we are when we're covering uh the enemies of freedom and power
0: it's nice not to have to explain right it's not 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 to be like well while the bad thing that this person who we supported before uh is bad we should say that it's not as bad as the thing that the person who we voted against would have done and you're like okay all right and if and for fox i think establishing some boundaries trying to establish some boundaries here after getting wiped out by under trump's twitter feed is a good thing
1: yeah
0: oh speaking of which yes yes Kush, the Kush, Jared Kushner, uh, uh, on a doing. I didn't know that he would really do a book tour, a media, a lot of media, but he's done quite a bit of media for his book that sort of contextualize. I've not read. I have not read the book. I've read excerpts that sort of seeks to contextualize. Not surprisingly, the good things that he did, particularly the Abraham Accords, inside the administration. It, but it, it seems like positioning. I don't know what it's positioning for exactly, but it seems like he's trying to trying to get back the Kushner bubble, right? The thing where there would be all how many stories have we read over the years where you're looking at the story and you're like did Jared Kushner just write this? Did Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump just write this article? Are they making it that's because for mainstream outlets, the the Kushner Trump, the Kushner Trumps were obviously a great source and they did it because and and got really favorable coverage don't you think over time
1: jared Namanka? yeah
0: i mean all the stories would be and the certainly in the early trump days well they're For trying sure. it
1: was that they're they're the moderating influence but i would not say that they got super favorable coverage maybe um,
0: by the end it had turned yeah, south
1: i i think that in you know, for the maybe the first year they were portrayed that way, and I think at by by the end, certainly it was that they're part of the problem. One thing I found interesting, Chris, is that Israeli uh, former Israeli officials are actually taking issue with some of the stuff Kushner has written in his book. Um, in particular, he and I have not read the book, but Kushner the way I'm reading the news coverage is that he seems to want to take credit for like rightful credit for moving the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, but to imply that like the Israelis didn't welcome the move and that they did this kind of over is uh, Israeli foot dragging. So And this is from Jewish Insider, where the former Israeli ambassador to the U.S., Ron Dermer, spoke with them about the Kushner book. Like, he came out and said, oh, we're taking issue with what Kushner writes in his book, which obviously, like... the. The Trump I I think that the Israelis felt for much of the Trump presidency like things are not going to get much better than this with Trump like doing so much for them. But so so Jewish Insider writes in in describing events leading up to Trump's decision to move the U.S. embassy, Kushner recounts a phone call the president made to the Israeli prime minister on December 5th, the day before the planned announcement, Trump called Bibi and told him the news. He writes using Netanyahu's popular nickname. Yeah, thanks. Okay, we got that. BB said he'd support the move if that's what the president wanted to do, but he didn't sound overly enthused. That's an interesting thing to write and, you know, big if true. Netanyahu's lukewarm response, recounted Kushner, prompted the president to begin second-guessing his decision. And so Ron Dermer comes out and says, I haven't read Jared's book. Yeah, you and you and the rest of us, Ron. But to argue that the prime minister of Israel was not supportive of the decision of Trump to recognize Jerusalem is ridiculous. Dermer told J.I. in an interview, we made it clear that we supported this decision from beginning to end. Dermer, who served in Washington from 2013 until 2021, admitted that moving the embassy wasn't necessarily Israel's top priority at the time. That would have been Iran. But he said we were fully supportive of this decision. Interesting. Arumph. OK, semaphore.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: New outlet. Back to back to the, the Daily Beast, which I got to say, like, do an interesting media reporting. Oh, yeah. They do it. Um, they, they sure do. Yeah. So, and I saw the New York Post pick this up. I've I've been wondering, like, who are these guys, Ben Smith and Justin Smith, and everybody's always like, no relation, no relation. Like, you know, Smith, it's a pretty freaking common last name. Uh, uh, was, I wasn't it, yeah. assuming relation. But uh, anyhow, they've been... Literally, like, interviewing everyone in Washington, D.C., trying to hire them for this new outlet. And I think people were expecting, like, all right, they're going to poach some big names from, you know, outlets around town. Who are they going to get from The Times, The Post, The Journal? Like, you know— Anyhow, Daily Beast reports, at the top of these names is the poaching of Washington Post national political correspondent David Weigel, who has made it known to friends that he wants out of the D.C. paper after being suspended earlier this year for retweeting a sexist joke. He retweeted that joke that, you know, Felicia Sanmez ended up getting fired over her reaction to this. But the joke was that all women are bi. The question is whether it's sexual or polar. And anyhow, it says... Investors had begun to grow concerned about the much hyped startup, and this is semaphore, the much much hyped startups lack of big name DC hirings just away from launch, and that they had approached Times correspondent Maggie Haberman and Axios reporter Jonathan Swan became away empty anyhow. It does. I don't know. Maybe they do have other big names, but it does strike me if they have like you know one name that would be underwhelming. Before, if before if that's launched. if
0: that's the only name, yeah, it's hard to find big. I mean, what what's a big name Washington journalist anymore? Like Swan, still he's a famous, well known. What I mean, who's even on the list that you would call a big name anymore?
1: I, there are a bunch of people who I think are impressive. Uh, basically, you just gotta break news. Like, who's doing re- that right now? There is one Maggie at the times,
0: which they said yeah. they tried for. There it.
1: is yeah. Alex Thompson at Politico.
0: Okay,
1: there is.
0: <laughs> okay, wait. There's so many big names that they're just they're everywhere. I mean, there's like Dan Bolts, but Dan Bolts is not gonna go. No,
1: they want he's not breaking news. I they know. want like they want people to break news.
0: Okay, well, I mean, I, I, I guess.
1: They want, like, people to kick A and take names.
0: But they're just, uh, I mean, Josh Dawsey, like, who's Yeah. The, okay. Yes. That's somebody like. Would that yeah. be a bigger get than Weigel if they said we got Josh yes, Dawsey? Yes, that would be a bigger get. Okay. I think so. I'm trying to get the get. I'm trying to get the get scale.
1: Yeah. Vogel at the Times. So they want, like, troublemakers. I see. You know, see. people I see. who are willing to upset people with their coverage.
0: Oh. I'm people we do need to be the skunk at the garden party but that sounds it sounds frustrating I don't it's not I just hang out at the dispatch we don't try to upset anybody (laughs) the eye roll that I just got for that one America I want you to know
1: we don't try to upset anybody that's a really great tagline for a newspaper oh my gosh all right Uh, not on purpose sometimes the
0: things we report are upsetting but never on purpose Oh yeah, this is in- really interesting. The Young News Consumers Report. So, the Associated Press, in conjunction with the National Opinion Research Center and the American Press Institute, have their report on young readers, young news consumers. And here's the headline that on the AP writer on the AP story: Study finds young people follow news, but without much joy. <laughs> But without much joy, as opposed to the rest of us, who I want to tell you, it's just a delight. It's just a, a romp. I, when I read when I read in in the morning, I, I say,
1: oh. actually do. It is a romp for me some days.
0: Uh, some days it is, but the, I don't know.
1: Especially when I find a favorite item.
0: Is joy really the no. emotion that we would say to people like, "Why no. would you read the news?"
1: That's my emotion when I watch Selling Sunset
0: to let it spark joy. Yeah. Yes, the, that is not what we what the news is for. But here's, the, here's from the report. Broadly speaking, that's conclusion of a study released Wednesday showing 79% of young Americans say they get news daily. The survey of young people ages 16 to 40, the older of which are known as millennials and the younger is Gen Z, I don't think so, but whatever, was conducted, da-da-da-da-da. An estimated 71% of this age group gets news daily from social media. The social media diet is becoming more varied. Facebook doesn't dominate the way it used to. About a third or more get news each day from YouTube and Instagram, and about a quarter or more from TikTok, Snapchat, and Twitter. Now 40% say they get their news from Facebook daily, compared with 50, 57% of millennials who had said that in a 2015 survey. Yet 45% also said they get news each day from traditional sources like television, radio stations, newspapers, and websites. So this the study would suggest an ongoing shift among millennials towards some more traditional sources of news but i think the other thing that's very important here is we are so i don't i don't think people really can get news from tiktok i don't really think that's true i think you can watch a video a funny video on tiktok but i don't think you can really get informed on tiktok because that's not what that's for and that's not there but what do i know
1: you know that you need to inform me. I don't even know who Harry Styles is. So,
0: oh well, we try to have a style section, right? <laughs> I've been, I've been, tr- I've been trying to honor. Yeah, your we're at service. like
1: our page a thirty-two. Like I don't know what this is.
0: We've come to so Harry Styles,
1: the, the Harry summer's st- pop prince. Apparently, I've missed out. Harry Where Styles, have I been?
0: who has wings tattooed on his chest, was once in a boy band. Is this true? We're just checking me out. One Direction. Is this- oh,
1: I like that band.
0: Okay, so Harry Styles was previously in. I like that. Previously in a boy band, and is now for those young women who liked the that he is now there. He he's like the Justin Bieber of his era. Is that right?
1: Okay, Colin, Colin says, says no.
0: Colin says that nah, like, but he's a heart. What, it's fair to say, heartthrob? Okay, very he's much a, so. Yeah. Okay, heartthrob. He's becoming
1: like a movie star now, and like all over the
0: place. Yeah, he, people are probably getting their news from him. Uh, okay, so here is an editorial. I swear goodness, this actually happened. Uh, Opinion guest essay. Harry Styles walks a fine line, says the New York Times. And Anna Marks, who is an uh, opinion assistant, uh, an editorial assistant in the opinion section, has written a long think piece that the New York Times ran about what Harry Styles owes the gay community. Is he gay? Well, you know what? That's a great question. He says, Mr. Styles has with his last two album releases, also been accused of queerbaiting. In this case... What is that? In this case, using queerness (laughs) to burnish his celebrity without explicitly claiming to be queer. Discussion of anyone's identities, even a celebrity's, is inherently fraught. But in a culture obsessed with identity politics and still constrained by homophobia, it's inevitable that we look at our icons and wonder who they really are, especially when their style and mystique seem to invite us to ask questions. Mr. Styles' performance and exorbitant ticket prices makes his identity our business. He skips on stage with what has become the most corporate-friendly symbol of resistance, the rainbow flag. He deals in less obvious symbols of his possible queerness, too. Sizable flowers pinned to a lapel as Oscar Wilde was known to wear, a scrap of blue fabric dangling suggestively from a back pocket, Like the village cruisers, the words never going to dance again tattooed across his feet, the croon of the once closeted later proudly out George Michael. But when he speaks, Mr. Stiles tells us a different story. He has consistently declined to claim queer identity or label himself when questioned by the press.
1: Now... Wait, the end is great. No matter how he identifies, if Mr. Stiles wishes to dance with our symbols... Uh. He would do well to pay more attention to their politics, regardless of whether he dreams with us of liberation. Oh, oh my gosh.
0: I mean, number one, who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Number two, would you please get your politics out of the pop music where it's not even enough that you have this guy who is, like, that is trading in your symbols or whatever, which should be a good thing, I would think, if you're, if you're trying to fight oppression uh, and your liberation, though I don't know how much a probably quite young editorial assistant who is a Harry Styles fan at the New York Times knows about what oppression was like for gay people in the not-too-distant past. But anyway, this is just a piece that's a great example about the kind of, and I say this advisedly, fascistic tendencies in American cultural life today that all, you know, the, the you know the symbol of the fascisti are the sticks bound together. You know, the it's like together these by binding these sticks together, they're strong like a branch. That everything has to be going in the same direction, and everything has to be unified in purpose. And summer pop dummies don't need to have a greater purpose. It can be summer pop. It can be fun. You can just enjoy the song. You can just enjoy the music. You can just go to the concert, and it doesn't have to be pulling toward the ultimate goal of our society. That's weird pressure, and it's not appropriate. Chris, a
1: rump That concludes our a thirty two style section that got very unstyly. But it is time now for our obsessions of the week. Where we break down the stories that we couldn't get out of our heads. And mine, Chris, is one we started, like, diving into this obsession. No
0: pun um, intended. Yeah.
1: before Even before we hit record, which was this New York Times expose on the Navy SEALs. And the headline is, and we'll link it in the show notes, Death in Navy SEAL Training Exposes a Culture of Brutality, Cheating, and Drugs. And it is a profile of a 24-year-old Yale graduate who died after SEAL training, but, like, very shortly after in in the barracks. And they did a toxicology report and found that he was doped up. But really it is, you know, the mother is interviewed saying they killed him. They say it's training, but it's torture. And then they didn't even give him proper medical care. They treat these guys worse than they are allowed to treat prisoners of war. And it struck me as like there is an interesting story in here about it basically says that there is a lot of doping going on in seal training, but it was kind of butchered by like the way the story was told which is trying to pin it on or make it out to be like something that the Navy did wrong which it does seem like they're not they have a challenge on their hands which is like policing the abuse of drugs in SEAL training at the same time it didn't seem to me like the story fully grappled with how important it is that the training actually be like violent and abusive and horrible because like they are training the nations like that. They need to train these people to kill people. survive violent, abusive, horrible situations and, to, and, and to how kill challenging people. that is. Like I, you know, I can't even imagine it. But, yes, they need to train killers Yes, and they need to train them to survive prisoner of war situations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do you do that? And instead, it really did become this like jacuzzi against the navy, with you know parents accusing them of killing their their sons when really the guy was like abusing the program and cheating the program. The kid, the kid was. It's obviously a horrible, horrible story, but there is an interesting story in here. I, you know, that what that I don't think was like executed in as interesting way as it could be because it did not grapple with like. Um, Sorry. Um, It didn't grapple with the challenges of training SEALs.
0: So here, let me read this graph. The SEAL teams have faced criticism for decades, both from from outsiders and their own Navy leadership, that their selection process or their selection course known as basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training or BUD-S, BUD slash S, is too difficult, too brutal, and too often causes concussions, broken bones, dangerous infections, and near drownings. Since 1953, at least 11 men have died. Now, I don't want to be these, uh, certainly not to this young man and his grieving mother, certainly not to any of them, but if you want to do this, people will definitely die, right? If you have effective training, for sure, it will sometimes result in death. Now, I will also point out that if you were to take a group, the same number of young men since 1953, and I don't know how many thousands and thousands and thousands of people have taken SEAL training since 1953— and how many have dropped out. They say that it sounds like the class, the 210 started with 210. So I don't know how many thousands of people have taken SEAL training. But if you were to take the same number of young men of those ages over that period of time, the percentage of them who die in on-the-job accidents at other jobs is probably high, right? Because these are guys who make (laughs) mistakes. These are are testosterone-charged. This is a, a very difficult demographic for suicide, for drunk driving, for just reckless behavior in general. So I guess, obviously, if doping is a problem and, and that's going on, that's right. But, you know, you have to, you ha- it, it, the, it's, the Navy is in a position where it cannot respond to the author of this article and say, Dave Phipps, uh, you know what? To have SEALs, people are going to die sometimes because the, the deaths in training save lives in, uh, in the field and on missions and that we do have to push them to this these, these extremes because we're asking them to do very extreme things. And I, I, it's tough because they, they just can't say it and then there's nobody to say it on their behalf. Because nobody wants to get in the middle of this, so it's I don't know. And
1: I'm not like I, I don't actually know that that's true, but it would be like very interesting to grapple with that. Yeah, and it, it doesn't really get done in the story. Oh. Anyhow, everyone should read it. it. There's a lot of interesting stuff in here.
0: Yeah, it's uh, the, there's tons that's interesting, but I agree with you that they miss the miss, miss the story and miss the misses some of the context here. Okay, speaking of having fun, here's fun. You want to bring joy. To your coverage. How about headline, The Guardian, more than 40% of Americans think civil war likely within a decade. Okay, here's my obsession. These polls stink. These polls are part of the problem. Uh, This kind of coverage is part of the problem. And I want to get, oh, am I paywalled now? I just came back to, I had it up before. Now I'm paywall. I think I even may give money to The Guardian. But. I'm not. It's a, it's a. Oh, thanks, Nate Moore. Thanks, Nate Moore. More than two, says The Guardian, more than two fifths of Americans believe a civil war is at least somewhat likely in the next 10 years, according to a new, new survey, a figure that increases to more than half among self identified strong Republicans. So it is a YouGov poll, and YouGov is not good. And their poll is not super, the one that they do with The Economist. And I will just say this you can ask these questions and i'm not saying there are not deep political divisions in the united states that's not what i'm saying we're very divided i have a whole book that i just wrote about it it's i'm not saying it's not there but i am saying that polls like this are part of the problem because they're doing let, qu- let me get this right since the beginning of 2021 do you think the country has been more politically divided stayed the same less politically divided well obviously so you have all of these things that are you know obvious but then you get to oh where is the where's the stinker rooney okay here's the stinker rooney looking ahead to the next year 10 years how likely do you think it is that there will be a civil war in this country first of all come on this is a survey question we're just going to ask people have you have you thought about a civil war how which side would you be on would you win would we have uniforms how would we do it (laughs) So like just asking you to muse about the the possibility of civil war, which is a little, a little dubious to begin with, but then you can put together very likely, somewhat likely to get to among all adults, you can get to 34% say that it is to at least some degree likely. And that's not that much really when you get down to it, even asked this way, even done that way. And these kind of surveys are just, this isn't real news and it's, Not a good poll, and just stop doing this stuff, please.
1: All right, time for my very favorite segment of the week, which is Reader Mail. And we have a real barn burner from Jenny, who writes, Dear Chris and Eliana, but really, it should just be Dear Chris. Oh, come on. She says... Thank you so much for your podcast. It is a favorite of mine, and I know you both will help me answer a question posed by my English students this week. But first, Chris, I want you to know that our Venn diagram has several major overlaps. One, I live about 20 minutes from Benton's County Country Hams Do and it. had the pleasure of interviewing Alan Benton for a feature story in a local magazine. Oh, He's wonderful. He's a wonderful and kind man. Okay, I have no idea who that is.
0: Benton's ba- Benton's Country Hams Benton's Bacon is the indi- I'm look I'm an Edwards man I'll I'll state my preference right up front but Benton's is reputed by many to be the greatest bacon in the world it's a it's a wonderful purveyor of smoked meats and and I'm, I'm proud to have tasted many of their wares
1: so she says, two, my father's side of the family is from West Virginia, so I spent many summers and holidays at my grandparents' farm in Meadowbridge nice. near Beckley and eventually in Charleston after Papa passed away and Mama Aww. needed to move to a bigger city. I dearly enjoy your stories about West Virginia and Mama. love the pride you have for your home state. Three, you and I are only a year or two apart in age, and we both began our journalism careers as teenagers in that glorious time when many cities still had competing papers. All that's to say, I'm thrilled to have you back on a regular podcast focused on journalism, no less.
0: Are we related, Jenny Miller? I don't know. Maybe we're cousins.
1: So, she says, here's the main point of my email. I teach several high school English classes at a local homeschool co-op. One of the classes focuses on the intersection of literature, mass media, and pop culture. In our discussion this week about print media continuing to struggle in the digital age, I had several students rally and ask me why this even matters. In my heartbreak, I failed to come up with an answer that satisfied me and them. Please help me make the argument that printed newspapers, magazines, books, and other media must continue alongside the growing number of digital options.
0: Well, I don't think it must continue. I think it will continue to whatever degree that it does. As I've said here many times, I think print is becoming a luxury. I think it's becoming a high-end thing. Print used to be a low-end thing. But now I think, and we've talked about it before, when you pick up the Financial Times on its tender pink pages, and it's expensive, buying a buying a print newspaper single copy now I don't know what they charge for a Wall Street Journal to buy a print Wall Street Journal now, but it's like 4 or $5, and maybe those are just DC prices. But I think print has become a high-end product because it is harder to do and more resource-intensive than digital, so I think that's part of it. And I guess on stuff like this, I've learned to have fewer opinions. Whatever happens is fine. I know how I like to consume news, uh, which is – Mostly on my I will confess, mostly on my phone. I mostly read on my phone, but also tablet uh, and sometimes the laptop. And I don't read print. I, but Oh, I'll tell you one. Have you seen this technology, uh, tablet, where it feels almost like paper? I may have to get this. And you can write on it, and it takes the notes electronically, and it feels like it's really a pad of paper. So if you want to write and work and not be distracted, if that's how you – you can't do it.
1: No, I haven't seen it.
0: But how, when you work, so I work like on the internet. We even Nate and I even, you know, we work through Google Docs to do the Sarah Waldism's note every week. Uh-huh. And like my work is totally immersed in the internet. I'm like, I'm I'm writing on the internet and I'm reading it constantly. How do you How do you process?
1: I work in Google Docs
0: mm-hmm. as well, and you're. And uh, do you care about print?
1: I do. And I have a different answer than you do for Hit for it. Jenny, which is that I don't necessarily with newspapers and things that are short, I don't necessarily think like we lose anything. And in fact, we gain like because it's easier to consume information in different places. Like you can read a news article right when you wake up in the morning, before you go to bed at night. Like you don't have to have the paper with you you can read it in the line at the grocery store, but with magazines and books i think there are certain types of articles particularly long form yes. literary essays long magazine pieces that just lend themselves more to being carried around and printed in magazines and and it's and more of a books, piece of art yeah that a people don't read online because right. of the attention span that people have for their phones and so i think that we're losing a lot of that kind of content and that is a loss. And then I think there's something, too. It's like, well, we have Zoom. Like, why do we even need to see people in person? Yeah. And, of course, there's, like, something – that's not a perfect analogy. But there's there's some kind of difference between just reading something on a screen and having something in front of you that you can go back to and see your notes in – from when you first read it from when you read it the second time that there is something nice about having something tangible that you can touch and see and have in front of you and that is of course like you know the more meaningful like things that will last the test of time that aren't like the daily news articles that are meant to be that are meant to be transitory
0: a magazine is a great point a magazine is really because what's wonderful about a magazine is that you can finish it. It's there. The news is never finished, but a magazine somebody it, that it they created it. I love writing for commentary because when they send you the magazine and you hold it in your hands and here is this magazine that was edited by these people who wanted it to look this way and chose this art to do this and it's one thing. It's it Its existence in physical space and not just digital space makes it a different, gives it a different experience. So I definitely like a magazine. I still definitely like a magazine, but don't. But I don't care about the paper anymore.
1: Well, it is now time for Chris's favorite time of the week, where I am forced to say something nice, but Chris, as always, leads by example. Chris,
0: Wall Street Journal headline. Do you need an interior designer or a marriage counselor? Interior designers often employ therapy-like techniques to find stylish compromises for clients with, uh, with warring aesthetics.
1: This You're, made me so glad that my husband is just like, yep, you pick it all, whatever whatever you want. Because yeah, there would definitely be conflict.
0: I would definitely tell people, don't have opinions. You do not need to have, gentlemen, you do not need to have opinions. Yeah, you'd be like, matters.
1: that black leather couch is awesome
0: you do not need to have opinions it's just you know i'm very fortunate that jessica is has amazing taste and she just knows how to do okay, it
1: okay okay she
0: does and she just knows how to do everything <laughs> but i know that even if she had the worst taste in the world and we were decorating a house together i would still say the same thing i would say oh, perfect i was i was hoping i was hoping that you'd put a shower curtain in the middle of the room because her happiness is more important than my aesthetic, and so, gentlemen, like, if you're very lucky, you won't, it won't even be a factor, but if you're thinking We're gonna about...
1: We're going to get so many emails about this.
0: If you're thinking about having an opinion about, and this would go for, I guess, wives, too, if the husband is design obsessed, but if you're a dude and your wife has strong feelings about interior design, think about shutting up. It probably, your first reaction should be to, to shut up.
1: My... Favorite item of the week is not actually... Well, it's kind of a favorite item. It's the New York Magazine profile of Meghan Markle. And again, we will link it. Because mm. you can go read this. And she looks fantastic, but that is about it. So you can read this. And it is the last thing that you will need to read ever in your life about Meghan Markle. Because, And I don't know if this was intentional on the part of the author, uh, Allison P. Davis... Um, In New York mags, the cut again. But she reveals herself to have absolutely nothing interesting to say and is the most vapid, whiny, tone-deaf human being possibly on the face of the planet. And this is probably a 10,000-word piece that there are, like, you know, you you are scrolling down this and on the side it's like, 39 pairs of sneakers to upgrade your wardrobe and um, I'm on the hunt for the best sunscreen without a white cast and I was like clicking (laughs) off the page to like see what sneakers I need to buy and so the piece was well done in that sense that I do think that the author was kind of in on the joke and was like this person is completely empty and pathetic here's a great here's
0: a great line Eventually, they purchased, let's see, Megan gestures to the sweep of the property from chicken coop to pool house to main house. (laughs) Eventually, they purchased it for $14.65 million. Quote, we did everything we could to get this house. Close quote. She leans her head back and lets the sun beam down into her pores. Quote, because you walk in and go, close quote. She takes a deep inhale through her nose and breathes out of her mouth joy and exhale and calm it's healing you feel free
1: yeah, ah!
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah that's pretty much uh, subs it up oh baby you've just i that's that's going to be your new tagline joy and exhale <laughs> and calm
1: it's healing that is pretty much what people you think feel of free when they think of me yeah. they think
0: of you and they're like just joy just and exhale joy and calm yeah exactly um, well, that is all
1: the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story that you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That is wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches.